everybody loves a bad guy. A lot of people love bad guys. There are, of course, the bad guys that take the side of the little guy that we all love. Those are your, you know, your Robin Hoods, your Pancho Villas, for example. They're easy to love. But there's also those who we may not love personally as themselves, but they fit the role that we need them to play. We want to know who the bad guy is. We want to be able to identify them. There's your Darth Sidious, of course, your Wicked Witch of the West, your Cruella de Vil, your Voldemort, and of course, your Hans Gruber. You need to know who the bad guy is so that we can get rid of them. And of course, Hans Gruber, we know, who later grew up to be uh, head of Slytherin House and become a much more complicated figure um, in the Harry Potter world. But if we can just eliminate the bad guys, everything will be all right. That's the narrative that we tell ourselves, the story that we often live in the world. Even at our most interpersonal level, sometimes, for some reason, it can be easier for many of us to cope with disappointment if there is someone to blame. If we know who is responsible for all of the things that we are going through. It is even more helpful when that bad guy confirms something about uh, us that we think is good about ourselves. So for instance, that's why we have John Wayne movies. That's why we named an, an airport after him. Because in John Wayne movies, the enemies are clear. They are them. We are us. White settlers, for instance, are justified in driving out Indians, the native inhabitants. Foreign enemies are ruthless and bad, and America fights only for freedom and liberty. These are the stories that confirm a certain American myth. They confirm us. And so we often, I say we very generally, but people like to tell them. As we move through Good Friday to Easter, I want to suggest this, that we see Jesus here as crucified as the bad guy. If there was a Roman John Wayne making movies in the first century, he would have probably have told stories of Roman conquests bringing peace and Roman justice and prosperity to a world of savage peoples. This is how Rome often presented itself including victory over those rebellious Judeans. And of course, Rome had these storytellers. They had these poets. They had sculptors that told these stories. Rome's capital in the middle of Rome had a monument to Roman peace that was set directly in relation to a monument of the goddess Roma atop a heap of weapons and armor of those who were conquered. Of course, you know what that says, right? We bring peace and we bring it by enforcing peace. The Arch of Titus is another great example, which towers over the Via Sacra in Rome, contains a panel on it that commemorates Rome defeating the Jews in the 70s uh, of the Common Era, leading away Jewish, you can see them here on the right side of your screen, leading away Jewish captives, sacking the temple. We see the, the menorah that's there um, and overpowering Rome. 
This is part of Rome's storytelling. John Wayne would have loved Rome. In that story, in the story that we have, Jesus is the enemy in the Roman story. And as we read Acts, Jesus was not simply executed by Rome. No, it says they killed him by hanging him on a tree. This is the sort of death that plays into the Roman story. To be hung on a tree is not just brutal. It's not just a killing. To be crucified is to be displayed in public for all to see. Not only is Jesus shamed, but this tells a story to everyone who passes by, everyone who watches about the victory of Roman power, about the sureness of Roman justice, and about what happens to those who oppose Rome. This is what happens when you oppose Rome. This is Roman justice. This is the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And the followers of Jesus live under the shadow of this death in the world. They bear the shame of this cross. This is the death that we proclaim when we take communion. And as this story plays out from the perspective of the audience of Acts, there's a different script. Who is the enemy? Rome is the enemy. And most certainly, as we read Acts 10, Cornelius is that enemy who faced off against Jesus. Cornelius is not, and if we're going to get this story right, we need to understand this context. Cornelius is not just part of a Roman machine. He is a leader. He is a commander. Indeed, this meeting between Peter and Cornelius must have brought the audience of the first century mostly Jews, probably Gentiles, but Gentiles that identified with the crucified Jesus, it must have brought them to the edge of their seats. What is going to happen? Peter, a leader in a movement whose founder was executed on a Roman cross, whose members were compared by the Sanhedrin to insurrectionists in Acts 5, in the same story, whose members, uh, who uh, Peter is meeting with a Roman commander of this occupying force. And centurions were known not to be just nice guys who happened to be, you know, doing their duty. They were known to be bad guys. They were known to be people who would go into a town, over, uh, rule over it, and routinely abuse their authority over the occupied inhabitants. Yet, when we meet Cornelius at the beginning of Acts 10, the picture is more complex. God, it seems, has listened to his prayers. To his centurions? They have come before God like an offering, and God accepts this offering. In fact, it says that Cornelius is constantly giving alms to the people. That means he is giving, uh, he is giving what he can. He's doing, uh, he is giving uh, they call mercy. He's giving uh, funds to the people. He fears God and he does works of justice. Righteousness is what we learn. To be clear here, the point 
with this shift in this different presentation is not to say that centurions were all really good and we just misunderstood them and we should all love Rome. Rather, the point is that this is remarkable. This is not to be expected. No one would expect this from a centurion. And this is why Peter says, I am learning something here. That God does not look at just what we expect at the outside. But God sees something else. This very encounter is messing with Peter's neatly ordered notions of the world. Who is the enemy? Who is to be opposed? And who is the good guy? Peter learns not simply that God will accept those from any nation who fear God and do justice, but God will accept apparently anyone because a centurion is on the wrong side, even a Roman centurion. And so perhaps this is a good place for that story to end. Maybe. Maybe it gives you all the right warm fuzzies. Uh, God has accepted us no matter how bad we are. But this acceptance in this story is important to understand. This acceptance isn't the end of the story, but it is the beginning of the story that we see. Not just Cornelius will go on and love God, but it's the beginning of the story we have in Acts 10. Peter has still been sent to tell Cornelius something else, to tell him a different story about the world than this Roman story that has perverted his imagination. A story that will shake the foundations of the world that he has accepted. And the reason we are here this morning is this story. He is risen. Good, he is risen indeed. Just making sure you're all listening. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yes. Peter comes to tell him about the resurrection. Because the resurrection is not just a feel-good story of acceptance, but it is an invitation into a story, into a way of being, into a people that reorders the world in which we live. It reorders the expectations and the things around us, and it reorders how we participate together in that world. In 1962, James Baldwin wrote a letter to his nephew in which he tried to offer insight on how to exist within a, within a country that perpetuates such horrific racism in seeming blindness to it. In this letter, Baldwin refers to his quote-unquote countrymen as the, and again, quote, innocent. But this so-called innocence uh, is not an excuse this innocence, this ignorance that clouds their eyes from seeing the realities of systemic racism, right? You can see that this innocence and ignorance as he unfolds this letter is not an excuse or a pass, but is itself the crime. Perhaps Cornelius, even though he is a good God-fearing man who works justice, who does good things for the poor, still lives in this quote-unquote innocence about the Roman story in violence, shaped by stories of Roman peace and Roman justice. Is it enough to simply do good and fear God? Cornelius has come to learn. And that's the amazing thing about this story, is that he does not uh, recalcitrantly live in this innocence, in this ignorance, but Cornelius... Uh, 
by the grace of God, has come to learn because he is seeking more. So Baldwin's fellow uh, countrymen, as he said, however, live in denial. They have not come. They have not come seeking more. And he offers this advice to his nephew. He says, this is the really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. They are in effect trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. Uh, I, honestly, I think this, what, if this, con this quote came by itself, I would almost feel like this is not the James Baldwin I know. Uh, but it, it does go on more. But there is a lot of wisdom in that. Baldwin, however, does not stop with acceptance. He goes further. Loving acceptance must be accompanied with loving confrontation. He writes, we, to continue, with love shall force our brothers and sisters to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from the reality and begin to change it. We shall make it plain as day, he said. We shall unmask the false gods that justify this oppression in our world and in ourselves. And this, I believe, is the story of resurrection. Cornelius comes and he is confronted. It is not enough that he fears God. It is not enough that he does righteousness, but he is to be confronted with a world that puts his violent stories uh, and lays them bare and turns them around. Peter's resurrection story is not simply a story about life after death. No, it is a story that confronts Cornelius's innocence and that alters his foundations. In Cornelius's world, Caesar proclaims the good news of Roman peace. Caesar is Lord of all and Roman justice is king. And it is this story that legitimates a whole host of oppressions and violations of conquering of peoples throughout the world uh, for bringing quote unquote civilization and prosperity to them, whether they want it or not. But Peter's story of resurrection challenges this order. God has sent the word of true peace, not through Caesar. That is key because the Romans have said over and over again, it is, it is, it is Julius Caesar, it is Augustus Caesar, it is Rome who brings peace. But in this story, Peace and the story of peace comes through Jesus, the Messiah. Even more than that, there was no doubt who was Lord of all in the Roman world. This specific phrase, Lord of all, be you Roman or subject to Rome, you knew Caesar was Lord of all. This was clear on coins and temples and monuments and proclamations but the resurrection shines forth a different reality. It is not Caesar who is Lord, declares Peter, but Jesus, the Messiah. This term, by the way, in Luke, that uh, the Sanhedrin clarifies for Pilate is saying, it means king, somebody who is a rival to Caesar, the Messiah. Indeed, Jesus' crucifixion unmasks the quote-unquote innocence of Roman justice as injustice. And the resurrection shows the true order of all that is. 
Jesus does not come with force of arms, exploitation, colonization, occupation, market manipulation, or militarization. His authority is in truth, in justice, in peace, in good news for the poor, and in the indomitable life that overcomes death. Jesus is not resurrected to bring more death, righteous violence, retribution, or vengeance, but in a further flipped flip of the script, he comes declaring forgiveness. In the midst of being executed, he raises in life and says, I, my authority does not depend on violence, and I offer you forgiveness. His authority simply is. To accept the resurrection is to deconstruct the oppressive powers of the world, the systems of injustice, and to live in refusal of them, to live in refusal to death, its powers and animating stories, to live instead in a kingdom that simply is springing forth by grace like a mustard seed, to live by the power of belonging, solidarity, justness, and the love that is God. I think this is the power behind the the long history of, of Anabaptist conscientious objection. You live in refusal to the powers of death because we believe in life and we do not participate in that reality. And so on this Resurrection Sunday, we are invited into this story, into a world living into Isaiah's vision where all people stream to the mountain of God for a feast of rich wine and choice foods, where death no longer reigns, and God herself wipes away our tears. May we be that people of peace, when in all realism it seems that our standing for peace is not effective, makes no sense. May we be a people that lives into this banquet and this peace, that forces this story in the face of our innocence, our quote-unquote innocence. This is a resurrection vision. And Jesus tells us in Nazareth, Luke 4, at the beginning of his ministry, that the time of this vision is today. Today, we can begin the march, singing songs of life and triumph, for he is risen. We will imagine a world where the borders that hold us apart, that segregate wealth, that determine between those who are worthy and those who are expendable will no longer exist, for he is risen. We will live according to the rules and imagination of death no longer because he is risen. He has risen, and we are those that are graced to journey with Jesus, to follow in the way of peace, to be. We are called and privileged enough to be a people of peace in and for the world. However impractical that may seem. How will you join in the procession, Pasadena Mennonite Church and friends? How will you hear the story that Jesus is Lord of all? May we find creative ways to participate in this eternal life, to defy the logic of scarcity and death. May we go forth together in the hope of a life where we may all belong to one another, eat at one another's tables, and live in the forgiveness of God who leads us in the good news of everlasting life. Amen.